from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. This is Pitt MedCast. I'm Elaine Vitone. Welcome to the second installment of our three-part mini-series introducing Dr. Anantha Shaker, the new Senior Vice Chancellor for the Health Sciences and John and Gertrude Peterson, Dean of the School of Medicine, to his new community. In this episode, Shaker's thoughts on the future of medicine in both the clinic and the research lab, and how best to support crosstalk between the two at PitMed. Important note, things have changed a lot since we recorded this interview in late February. For an update with Shaker's take on Pitt in the post-COVID-19 era, tune into our next episode, part three. What do you think medicine will look like 10, 20 years down the road? Medicine is going to change. I mean, healthcare itself is going to change. And I would say it'll change at two major levels. First, our ability to understand diseases, predict disease outcomes, manage diseases is going to exponentially improve over the next two decades, partly because of all of the information we are now able to gather, but also the ability to manage large sets of data to understand patterns. That capacity was not there before. The human genome and with our computational advancements and our big data and artificial intelligence and other technologies, our ability to predict an individual's health and outcomes are going to be dramatically different in 10 to 15 years. I think the second thing that is going to change is that given where healthcare is currently at and it's really unsustainable costs that we're currently going to be facing, I think there's going to be more focus on prevention and more focus on long-term health as opposed to health care. And I think we are going to focus much more on prevention of diseases over the next 20 years so that we don't end up with very expensive end-stage disease that requires a lot of treatment. Here at Pitt and other major medical centers, we're hearing more about precision medicine. That is, the idea that the right approach to care and prevention is likely to be different depending on the individual patient and the time in their life. When you think about the promise of precision medicine, do any particular patient stories come to mind? I have led the Precision Health Initiative at Indiana for the last five years, and we have seen some extraordinary stories. Some of the most dramatic stories are in cancer. Cancer itself, we know, is a very complex sort of genetic disease, and it affects people from all ages. But some of the cases that we've had a sort of fortune to do precision medicine approaches on have been extraordinary. So we had a dramatic case. It's a young girl, she was six years old, and went to the school nurse complaining of abdominal pain. And, you know, they basically thought she was stressed about a class or eating something. So for a couple of days, they just kept her in the nurse's station and thought it was nothing. And it turns out that this persisted and she went to her primary pediatrician. And then within a day, it was clear that she had very advanced genetic form of ovarian cancer across her entire abdomen and had already begun to move into her chest. 
So here is a six-year-old girl. Normally, that would have been pretty much a death sentence, and parents were already thinking about how to deal with this, how to sort of give hospice care, et cetera. But we just had started our precision medicine clinics at that time. So we had just started to do the whole genome sequencing, that is sequencing the entire genome of the tumor. And it turns out that when we did that, it had a very aggressive and unusual mutation, which is typically seen in adult lung cancer of people who are chronic smokers. But fortunately, there was a experimental drug that was being tested in lung cancer. And we were able to then get a special permission and start this girl on that drug. And within eight weeks, her entire cancer just melted away. And she's now in California and I think is in seventh grade, is a 12-year-old now. So that's an example of how the understanding of the disease and the precision with which you can sort of treat those diseases can totally have miraculous effects. Similarly, we've had a person who had acute leukemia who had become resistant to everything. He was in his 50s and it was essentially going to go into hospice care. But with modern immunotherapy, now we can actually take a blood cell from that person and genetically engineer it to attack his tumor. And that's called CAR T cell therapy. And we were able to create a CAR T that was specific to his leukemia. And he is currently disease-free. And these cells will be circulating in his body. So he's probably, even if the disease comes back, they'll be ready to kill the disease. It's extraordinary the kinds of things that are happening by precisely understanding the person's disease and creating a very targeted treatments for them. So when we think about precision medicine, how do we get there? Uh, how do we get to the point where we're fulfilling its promise? Yes. To fulfill the promise of precision medicine, I think we need to rethink the way we have both of our research enterprise as well as our clinical enterprise have to be much more integrally married. So for example, right now, we can do sequencing, genetic sequencing of patients, but it's majority of the time, almost entirely, it's done as part of research studies. At the same time, we never integrate that routinely into our clinical practice. So, for example, we can predict today what specific types of drugs are best given to specific types of patients based on their genetics, yet we don't routinely use those tests. We simply try drugs and hope that it works in a person. And if it doesn't work after four weeks, we say, well, maybe this is not the right one for you. We'll change to the next drug. Instead, we could be looking at the person's genetic and behavioral phenotypes and then predict what drugs would best work for that person. And that's the simplest precision medicine approach. She doesn't have to have incredibly fancy research enterprise, but it takes a way to organize the way we think about healthcare, the way we train our doctors, and the way we create our hospitals and our clinics to use those kinds of information.
So I think there are some very important first steps that we need to start thinking about. Today, if we went to 23andMe and got a genetic profile, and that profile said, well, you should not be taking these medicines and you should be taking these medicines, an average primary care doctor has very little knowledge how to act on those things. So we have not even trained physicians to use those kind of information. So we have a lot of basic things to do, but that's the next change of how to make precision health and precision medicine part of our routine clinical care. And I think that would be the first one. The second step is really to have large data sets of hundreds of thousands, perhaps even a million patients with various genetic as well as health utilization data and try to understand better patterns of how to predict outcomes, which diabetics need to have insulin, which diabetics need to have diet, and which diabetics have to have exercise. Those can all be tailored to the person and their genetics and their disease. So we need to understand that. To understand that, we need lots of data, and then we need huge computing capabilities and sophisticated data analysis, all of which is here, by the way. I mean, beyond anybody, UPMC and Pitt are probably the world's best place where this can happen because of the size, the complexity of the health system we have here, the talent that we have at uh, Pitt, as well as at Carnegie Mellon with all their AI and computational capabilities, Pittsburgh would be the place that is actually going to make precision medicine normal and actually routine. So that would be my goal over the next five years. That's the hope. Were there any other aspects of the University of Pittsburgh that attracted you to this position? Yeah, I, mean, I think the University of Pittsburgh is an incredibly rich place in terms of not just the School of Medicine and UPMC, but the other health sciences schools are really all top-notch. And in this role, I get to work with all of the deans of the health sciences schools, which gives me a very unusual ability to coordinate a lot of the activities in health sciences. One of the, for example, as I mentioned, to really do routine precision medicine now you don't not only have to sort of educate physicians, but you've got to educate nurses, you've got to educate pharmacists, you've got to educate allied health folks. So the whole team has to be educated. In fact, the most successful implementation of genetically driven treatment in our system is through pharmacy and the pharmacists, because they're the ones that actually give the actual pills to patients and they're the ones that actually give the instructions on how to take it and what to take at what time. So in many ways, they are actually much more integral to precision medicine. So to be able to coordinate how we educate not just medical students, but nursing students and pharmacy students, dental students, I mean, this is an incredible opportunity. So that's another thing that attracted me. And I really liked the chancellor, so that was great too. So you always want to like your boss as well. <laughs> it's really very exciting for me to be here, to be part of this great new adventure. I mean, I know it's already at a pinnacle of an academic medical center, but I think it can be a national model for decades to come. Yeah, quality healthcare does take a whole village of professionals from across the health sciences working together. 
what are your thoughts on how we prepare graduates for that village? Yes, so I think this goes to the next level of transformation we need to do. Right now, all health profession education occurs in pretty much their own silos. So medical students go through medical school and graduate. Nursing students graduate from nursing school. And then all of a sudden, as grown-ups, they're working together in a, quote, team, but they've never really worked with each other other than show up in the clinic and then they're sort of modeling their supervisor's behaviors. I think we can do better than that. We can actually begin to incorporate their team-based learning right from day one. So I would like to see every first-year medical student and every first-year nursing student and first-year dental students working as teams and understand the person that they're managing, not just the disease that they're managing. So if a doctor prescribes something, you need to have a pharmacist on the same team. You need to have a nurse that actually gives out all those treatments on the same team. So you can have them have very different trainings, very different levels of understanding, and very different way of dealing with the patient, and then hope the patient doesn't get totally confused. And that's currently the situation we're in. So you talk to each of these people, you get slightly different answers, and as a lay person, you're going to be totally confused. So we'd love to change all of that. And I think here we can do that better than anywhere else. What are your thoughts on the future of medicine from a social justice perspective? It's really an important question, the one that I've struggled with. And, you know, in Indianapolis, I started something, say, three years ago. One of the unfortunate facts is that there are probably, if you looked at top 30 medical schools in the country, they all live in a community that is the unhealthiest in their city. They're all usually downtown. They're usually surrounded by incredibly poor communities or poor health outcomes. So I feel like academic health centers have a moral obligation and a social responsibility to really get involved and do something about the poor health outcomes. I mean, I don't know the statistics on Pittsburgh, but I know in Indianapolis, the worst infant mortality is in the downtown area that is literally two miles radius of our academic medical center. And yet we are a research beacon and we have incredible intellectual capabilities. I definitely want to put that on one of the key metrics for our health sciences schools, to say that a healthy city of Pittsburgh is part of our success metric. It's not just how much NIH grant we get or how many great discoveries we make, but it's also to say that we've changed health of Pittsburgh and that should be a model for Hopkins, which sits in the middle of Baltimore with terrible outcomes, or UCSF with uh, homeless people in San Francisco. So I think that's what we also need to do. What does it take to nurture both basic science and clinical science and the rare birds who do both? I think it is traditionally been a very different training, very different kind of discipline to do fundamental research 
and understanding basic biological principles and doing clinical research and dealing with the complexities of human outcomes and human diseases. But more and more, we need to bring those skill sets together, whether it's in the form of teams or in a rare occasion of individual investigators who have great depth and expertise on both sides of this equation. And I think to solve the most vexing problems of human health, we need to have a very deep understanding of the biology, but to come up with the solutions from that deep understanding, we also need to understand the full spectrum of human condition and human disease states. So a translational researcher is someone who bridges that gap, who can actually literally translate the fundamental biological knowledge into a actionable clinical intervention. And we need to grow more of those. We need to create teams that can function in those translational world. And we need to think deeply about how we transform all of our both research education as well as medical education to make that happen. You've been listening to Pitt MedCast. A print version of this three-part miniseries on Dr. Anantha Shaker will appear in the fall 2020 issue of Pitt Med Magazine, which you can find on our website, pitmed.health.pit.edu. That's Pitt with two T's. This miniseries was produced by yours truly, Elaine Vitone, with Maya Best. Our executive producer is Pitt Med Magazine Editor-in-Chief, Erica Lloyd. Our music was by Blue Dot Sessions. Pitt Med Magazine is published by the University of Pittsburgh's Office of University Communications and Marketing and the School of Medicine.